Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, our our text this morning begins in verse 15, and we'll run to the end of the chapter, verse 29. The last couple of weeks, we've seen how the preacher has been asking us questions like how much is enough and what good is it? And perhaps we might have phrased today's message around a similar kind of question. What does true wisdom look like? Because what the, what the preacher is trying to do ultimately is to explode the, the, the wisdom that we think we have, the wisdom of this world, what we might call conventional wisdom, so that he might lead us to, what, to the place of true wisdom. Ultimately, the true wisdom that's found in, in the fear of the Lord. And so this passage is meant to lead us by the hand to see ourselves as we are and to see God as he is. That's the famous first line from John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. All the wisdom that we possess that is true godly wisdom is found in the knowledge of God and in the knowledge of ourselves. That's what the preacher's trying to do for us this morning is to show us true wisdom, divine wisdom, and where it might be found. But in order to see this this morning, we we do need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come desiring to hear once again from your word. Holy Spirit, we pray. Open our eyes of faith this morning. Illuminate us so that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We do believe, O Lord Spirit. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are spiritually discerned. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, help us to discern your things today, spiritual things, things of the Spirit, that we might be led by the hand to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and beginning in verse 15. In my vain life... I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, 
which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we do know what conventional wisdom is. Um, and for many of us, when we think of conventional wisdom, we, we, we tend to think of it as in ways that are similar to the book of Proverbs, these kind of common sense statements about how the world works. And so there are a number of sayings that have come down to us through time that represent a kind of conventional wisdom, like an apple a day keeps the doctor away, or honesty is the best policy, or a penny saved is a penny earned, or you can't judge a book by its cover. All of these kind of proverbial sayings represent a kind of received tradition, a kind of conventional wisdom. And yet that's not all that conventional wisdom represents. Conventional wisdom represents, too, a kind of way of seeing the world, a generally shared idea of how we make our way through that world, what makes sense. And that, that worldview, if you will, that way of seeing the world, it can shift and change over time. And most of the times, uh, that conventional wisdom it comes to us from our parents and our grandparents, and we pass it on to our children and grandchildren. In fact, this past week, I was reminded of a story that illustrates that very thing. There was a, 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 a newlywed couple, and, and they were preparing a meal together. Uh, and the, the new bride was finishing the meatloaf. And as she pressed the meatloaf into form, she took out a big knife and she cut off the ends. And her new husband said, baby, what's that about? Like, why did you just take a knife out and cut the ends off of the meatloaf? And she said, you know what? I have no idea. It's just what my mama's always done. And so a couple of weeks later, they went over to her parents' house, and she's in the kitchen, this new bride with her mother, and, and it's meatloaf that night. And they're finishing it up, and the bride's mother is, is pressing the meatloaf into place, and right before she finishes, she takes out the knife, she cuts the ends off, she puts it in the pan, and this, this newlywed bride says, Mama, this came up a couple of weeks ago, and, and Jim was asking me, like, why do, we, why do we do that? Why do we cut the ends off of the meatloaf before we put it in the pan? And, and her mother says, you know what? I, I have no idea. It's what my mother's always done. Well, it's Christmas time. And all the families together. And one of the family traditions in the run-up to Christmas, I'm glad this is not my family, is to have meatloaf. And so the grandmother's preparing the meatloaf. And she presses it all together. She takes out the knife. She cuts off the ends. And and her daughter and granddaughter are in the kitchen with her, and they said, ah, there it is, Grandmama, why do, why do you cut the ends off of the meatloaf? And the grandmother looks puzzled, and she picks up the pan, she said, it's the pan. The meatloaf doesn't fit in the pan whole, so I have to cut the ends off to get it to fit into the pan. That's how wisdom's passed down, isn't it? Grandmama just cut off the ends to fit it off in the pan, Daughter, granddaughter thought there was some great wisdom in it. But that's how we all too often operate. We receive the conventional wisdom of the day from our family, from our culture around us, from social media, from what we see on TV. 
And we think that it represents a kind of wisdom about how to make our way through the world. The preacher this morning is exploring that very kind of wisdom. And here's the thing that he discovers as he goes about searching all of these things out, trying to connect the dots and to make sense of of the schemes that we make and the wisdom we observe. Here's what he discovers. The conventional wisdom about the way the world works is not actually wisdom at all. And it's because it ultimately doesn't tell the truth about the way God's world works. It's part of the reason why in in verse 24, the preacher will say that which has been far off is deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Who can find out what true wisdom is? Well, he's going to tell us in this passage where true wisdom might be found. Namely, the the, the true wisdom, the, the, the right view of how things connect together, about how this world works, it only comes from God. From what God says about us as human beings, and ultimately, not just about what he says about us and the real problems that we face, but also where the solutions to life might be found, where the real answers might be found, namely in himself. But in order for us to get there, the preacher has to help us see and explore and ultimately explode that which we might consider conventional wisdom. He tells us at the very beginning that this is what he's up to. He's trying to understand how the world works. He says in verse 15, in my vain life, I have seen everything. I've been everywhere, he says. I've seen everything. I've been everywhere there is to go. Buddy, I've seen it all. And in fact, for the preacher, he tells us once again that that seeking wisdom has taken on the character of a quest. He says in verse 23, All this I've tasted, tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far off from me. Verse 25, I turned my heart to know, to search out, to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness of madness. We've heard him say that before, that he's been on a quest of sorts to try to understand what true wisdom looks like. He said that in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, and again in verse 17. But here he reminds us, this is no slapdash effort he's been pursuing. He's been pursuing with all of his mind to understand life under the sun. How does this world work? How does this world work? And, And what he's discovered has been three pieces of conventional wisdom. Three pieces that, that, that have been received from our parents and our grandparents, that have been received from our larger culture. Three areas of conventional wisdom that don't work at all. They, they, they are actually profoundly wrong. And the first area of conventional wisdom that he discovers and discovers is profoundly wrong is this idea that morality produces prosperity. Morality produces prosperity. He says in verse 15 that there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, this is shocking, this discovery. And in in order to understand how shocking it is for the preacher to discover 
that the righteous man perishes and the wicked prolongs his life in evil doing. We have to understand this, the conventional wisdom of his day and honestly the conventional wisdom of our own day. Because buried deep in our view of the world is this idea that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. We have it deep in our bones that good things happen to good people and bad things, in fact, happen to bad people. Even Christians have this sense of, of karma, if you will, that if we, have, you know, in this kind of circle of life, if we do good, good returns to us. If we do harm, harm returns to us. That, that's, that's embedded deep inside of us. There's this kind of this for that, a kind of quo quid, pro, uh, quid pro quo, this for that. And if we do this, we'll get that. But the fundamental problem with this conventional wisdom, particularly when it comes to morality and blessing, that morality produces prosperity, it's not true. It's just not true. It doesn't go here with how the world actually works. That's what the preacher says. The righteous man dies in his righteousness. That's exactly opposite of what he might expect. The wicked man who should be suffering, he lives a long life in his evil doing. That's, that's how the world works. Morality, in fact, does not produce prosperity. And that's why the preacher gives this stunning advice in verse 16. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And what he's saying there is simply this. If you view morality... If you view living a good moral life as some kind of way to obligate God to bless you, to bless you with prosperity, to bless you with an easy path in life, you're kidding yourself. God doesn't work that way at all. God isn't going to be put in a box. He's not some kind of cosmic Coke machine where you put in your coins of morality and you press the button to get out prosperity. In fact, this conventional wisdom that morality produces prosperity, it, it fundamentally fails because it fails to reckon with the fear of the Lord. That's, that's what the preacher says in verse 18. He says, the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Both of what? Well, what he said earlier. Of course, the one who fears the Lord will turn from sin. Hence, he says, be not overly wicked, right? But the one who fears the Lord also will not look to his morality, to his good way of living, in order to gain any leverage with God. Because, of course, those who reverence God know that God doesn't work that way. He's not bound by our apparently good deeds, by our good behavior. He's not obligated in any way. Anything we receive is always all of grace. And so what the preacher discovers here is that this bit of conventional wisdom that morality produces prosperity is actually wrong. But there's another area of conventional wisdom that he, that he discovers is, is fallible. It's this idea that knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. He says in verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city, surely, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, that phrase, knowledge is power, 
is attributed to Francis Bacon, but, but it, in fact, it's had a long life. It represents conventional wisdom concerning how life works under the sun. We, we, we really do believe that if we can simply know enough, if we can simply gain enough knowledge, then we can master life. We can learn how to live skillfully. We can accomplish things. If we just knew it, if we just could somehow gain the knowledge necessary, we can figure out all the problems of life and, and control and, and ultimately not suffer. Knowledge is power. On the surface, it appears that the preacher agrees with that. Right? I mean, he says in verse 19, wisdom gave, uh, gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers within a city. And that saying agrees with other Proverbs. Like Proverbs chapter 24, verse 5, a wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might, for by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. But there's a problem that the preacher notes immediately in verse 20. There's not a wise person on earth. There is not a single wise person, not a single righteous person, not a single good person on earth, right? That's what he says. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, which means, of course, we're all fallible, and we're all flawed, and we're all fallen, and we're all limited. There's not a single one of us that can ever have enough knowledge to wage war or to balance the budgets or to reconcile marriages or to live skillfully in this life. We're all flawed. We're limited. We're fallible. And we know this about ourselves. We know that we can't know everything. And we know that in much of what we see or say or think is in fact wrong. We, we can't see the whole thing whole. And to act like we can is actually an act of hubris that has disastrous consequences. Even more, we, we, we get frustrated and bittered against one another because we know certain things by way of gossip. We hear that our servant is cursing us, our friends are cursing us, our, our neighbors are cursing us, fellow church members are cursing us. And yet we have to confess, even when we know this by way of gossip, that we've done the very same things. It proves that in fact... Though we may know certain things, we're profoundly sinful through and through. As the poet farmer Wendell Berry put it, to trust progress or our putative genius to solve all the problems that we cause is worse than bad science. It's bad religion. To, again, to trust progress or genius to solve our problems is bad religion. And yet we keep doing it, don't we? we? We really do believe if we could just read one more book or have one more Bible study, then we'll have the knowledge to be able to control our lives and to fix our messy hearts. I once had a dear friend who was one of the most brilliant people I ever knew. He was an oncologist, medical doctor, uh, and he was an inveterate reader. Um, I know I have a lot of books. Um, this man's uh, book collection makes mine look extremely poor. He, he actually dedicated his entire garage and he built an upstairs in his garage to contain all of his books. When he died, he actually donated the books to the church and we actually created shelving in a Sunday school room to contain the books and we only could contain actually half of the books. He had a lot of books. He read for the Puritans, well, from the Reformers through the Puritans to modern day theologians, had this amazing collection. And yet, 
as much as he read and as, as much as he studied, and all of these books were read as I went through them for the church library. They were all marked up and highlighted. As much as he tried to gain in knowledge, he could never fix his messy heart. He struggled with anger. He struggled with lust. He had had affairs. It wasn't actually until he suffered through a series of providences that finally, finally there was power because, of course, God makes his power known in weakness. And yet we do the same exact things, don't we? We think that knowledge is power. And what the preacher is telling you here is that, in fact, that conventional wisdom is profoundly wrong. But there's one other area that he discovers that's conventional wisdom, but is also wrong. Not just that morality produces prosperity and knowledge is power. No, the third area is that illicit sex enhances and heightens pleasure. Look at verse 26. It's, it's a pretty stunning word he gives. He says, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, again, this, what the preacher discovers here completely overturns conventional wisdom. Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, as well as in our own world, the idea that was that forbidden fruit, forbidden sexual fruit, actually offered so much more pleasure than monogamy. The idea was that illicit sexual encounters were so much better than faithful marital relations. Of course, you know that that is the message of our own day. Whether it's in novels or television shows or what you can stream on Netflix or what you see on TikTok or what you see elsewhere on, on the internet, over and again, the message is driven into our heads and our hearts that, that illicit sexual encounters, that's what heightened pleasure. That's what actually delivers the pleasures our hearts desires. Not monogamy, not faithfulness. Oh, it's hard to believe it's been a decade now, but you might remember the television show that we ran on ABC called Desperate Housewives. Each advertisement for that show ended with an apple. Why? Well, the message was that the desperate housewives were desperate to grasp hold of that which is forbidden so that pleasure might come, might be heightened. But what shocks the preacher and ultimately shocks us is that actually... While illicit sexual behavior may give momentary pleasure, it ultimately leads to death. It leads to death. Sexual encounters with multiple partners, whether real and in person or virtually through your computer or smartphone, leads to snares and nets, he tells you. It leads to fetters and bitterness. It leads to destruction and death. The conventional wisdom is, is, that, is that that pathway of illicit sexual relationships, it offers pleasure, heightens it in fact. But like other areas of conventional wisdom, it's just not true. Some of you know that. You've experienced the destructiveness of not living within a faithful marital relationship. You've seen how it's harmed you personally, how it's destroyed your relationships, both with your spouse and with your lover. It's affected your children. It's affected, for some of you, your workplace. You can testify this morning that what you thought was conventional wisdom, what the world tells you is in fact true about life under the sun, was exactly wrong. It's exactly wrong. But how is it possible to get all of this so wrong? To, to embrace this this conventional wisdom 
even as religious people, spiritual people, to believe that morality produces prosperity and knowledge is power and, and illicit sex actually heightens pleasure. How can, we, how can we believe these things and see the world in this way and yet be so wrong? Well, it's because conventional wisdom is just that. It's convention. It's common. But to have true skill for living in God's world You and I must have divine wisdom. And there's one piece, one foundational piece of divine wisdom the preacher wants to give us this morning. And here it is. The problem, my problem, your problem, our problem, the problem is sin. The problem is sin, or or to put it more expansively, the defining characteristic, the, the dominating reality of life under the sun is sinful habits that come from a sinful heart, and they come from the heart of every human being on earth. That's the defining characteristic. It's the dominating reality. Sinful habits from sinful hearts of every human being on the face of the earth. I mean, the sinful habits, they're easy to see, aren't they? We've seen them throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. Even here, the preacher tells us, be not overly wicked. Don't be a fool. Surely there's no righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We have cursed others. We've known the wickedness of folly, the foolishness that is madness. Many of us have allowed our hearts to pursue after that which doesn't belong to us, other sexual patterns, relational patterns that represent snares and nets and fetters. There are all these sinful habits, but they come from sinful hearts. What you and I have to understand and embrace is is that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You and I are not fundamentally good people who just make mistakes every once in a while. People with hearts of gold who get wayward. No, that's not it at all. We're not as bad as we could be, but we're sinful through and through. We, are, we have hearts that live the way we want to live in rebellion against God and his word. And so because of that, we, we transgress over and over and over again. And that's just what the preacher has found. He says at the end of it, in verse 29, the end of the section, he says, See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made us upright, but because of the the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and from everyone descended from them, we've sought out many schemes, many wayward ways, many, many areas of transgression against the law of God. In fact, the preacher will use hyperbole in verses 27 and 28 to tell us after searching and searching, after making a thorough discovery process of it all, this is what he found. There's hardly one human being, whether male or female, who's upright or wise or righteous, which is his way of saying the same thing that the apostle Paul says in in Romans chapter 5. He There, Paul tells us that one might die for a righteous person or a good person. The reality is none of us are in that category. We're sinners. We're ungodly. We're rebels. That's what the preacher is telling us. The, The defining characteristic, the dominating reality, the real problem is sin. Sinful habits that spring from sinful hearts of every human being in the world. That's why the conventional wisdom of this world is so wrong. And that's why for some of you, your lives are so messy. 
I mean, we've, we've kind of embraced that language. Well, I'm so messy. I'm so broken. Yes, you are. Here's why. It's because your heart is sinful. The real you is, is deceitful. You lie to yourself. It's desperately wicked, the Bible tells us. It's constantly charting out its own path, contrary to God's word and will. Your problem and my problem, our problem is sin. But that's not the final word. At least it's not the final word that the rest of the Bible gives us. Yes, divine wisdom is found in recognizing that that our real problem is in fact sin. But the solution step is one that God offers. The the answer always and forever is is Jesus. That's where true wisdom is to be found. In knowing, coming to the end of ourselves so that we confess, yes, my problem is sin. But but the answer is Jesus. That's where the Apostle Paul will go in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There he says, who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. What's Paul saying to us? Well, if we would know true wisdom for how to make our way in this life through this world, it begins by recognizing that that wisdom doesn't doesn't come from us. Yes, true wisdom comes from knowing who we are, but, but we find as we look at our own hearts and lives that, that the, our problem is sin. But when we, when we lift our gaze upward to who God is for us, what do we find? We find the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's what we heard in the assurance of pardon this morning. In this is love. Not that you love God, but that God loved you. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be what? the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for your sins. In other words, God did something about your problem, the problem of a sinful heart that produces sinful habits. In Jesus Christ, he came to die, not just so that you might be forgiven, but so that you might be changed, you might be transformed, so that Christ might be for you both wisdom, yes, but also power, so that when you come to Jesus Christ and you rest your heart in him, what you'll find that it's, is, it's not in morality, but it's in Jesus that true prosperity is found. It's not in knowledge, but it's in Jesus that we experience transformative power. It's not in illicit sex, but it's in Jesus that we find solid joys and lasting pleasures. You see, he's the answer. He's the answer to the deepest needs of your heart. Your problem is is that you'll chase in all sorts of directions, along all sorts of paths, to have your own way. And God's content to let you do that for a time so that you'll come to the end of yourself and see, this isn't working for me. The conventional wisdom about how to live life in this world, it's not working for me. God will allow you to do that so that you'll begin to look at his answer. Because his answer is Jesus. So what does that mean for you? That means you need to come again to Jesus, whether 
It may be that you're here for the very first time and you've never heard this. And you've been confronted today with the reality that, no, actually your problem isn't that people are mean to you or they're against you or there's a conspiracy against you or anything like that. Your real problem is actually your sin, your sinful heart that produces sinful habits that brings you under the judgment of God. But this morning, you've also heard there's an answer that Jesus Christ has died for sinners like you and me. He's the propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice. And so in order for you to move from the end of yourself to Jesus, you need to go. You need to run to him. You need to put your trust in him, rest upon him, receive him as he's offered to you in the gospel this morning and say to him, Jesus, I'm done with myself. I want you. But that's the same if you grew up in this church. If you were baptized here and made a profession of faith here, you've grown up here all your days, but you know that actually you've been living according to the world's wisdom, according to the conventional wisdom that we've talked about this morning. Whether it's for the first time or the 10,000th time, friends, you and I need to run to Jesus Christ, to come out of our darkness, out of our sin, out of our night, out of our own self-willed ways of living, and we need to run to Jesus and ask Jesus to fill us full of himself. And you know what? If we do that this morning, Jesus himself promises to fill us full of himself. The great hope of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You'll discover then that Jesus Christ, he's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, Spirit, we come to you today asking that you would fill us full of yourself. Lord, we come again. And we come to this table. And we come to be before the Father's throne above. And we desire to meet with you because Jesus you are only hope you are the only answer that your father has given and so Lord please meet us meet us at this table meet us in this time grant us grace this morning to embrace you yet again as you've been offered to us in the gospel we pray it in Jesus name amen let's prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's table